Inspiration is the key. You cannot self-inspire. And inspiration gives you hope. And I'm tired of people saying hope is not a strategy. Everything in my career is says the exact opposite. Hope is the strategy. I do hope exercises all the time. I hope my customer loves it. So I hope we're building the right thing. When you have hope, it gives you courage. Hey, it's Matt. And this is Pass the Secret Sauce. Mike Stemple helps corporate executives to think and act more entrepreneurially. This is accomplished through client workshops and entrepreneur in residence, EIR Consulting. Recently, Mike embedded for two years with Molson Coors as their EIR, where he provided the entrepreneurial mindset for global innovation teams. Mike has built 20 plus startups, is an expert at ideation, innovation, startup psychology, and brand creation, and is also a mentor at Techstars, a global seed accelerator. Mike lives in San Diego, is an ex-sponsored ultra-runner athlete, a director emeritus at the Founder Institute, a past governor appointee to the Co-Governor's Council for Physical Fitness, and a proud combat medic veteran of the U.S. Army. I have two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother, so I'm a middle kid. Both my parents are still alive to this day and been married to one another forever over 50 years. So growing up, we had a, a very tight family structure. We always ate together. My mom was a stay-at-home mom until we were teenagers. And dinner time, probably the one time there wasn't chaos because we were all kind of together and sitting. And this is a lot of fun looking back on that, uh, that time. We, we didn't have a lot. We weren't poor, but we definitely struggled. But I had a set of amazing parents that with each of my, my brothers, were all three vastly different. And what, what's cool is I've worked with both of my brothers, and all three of us have worked together in startups. They just really instilled quite a bit of family to, uh, and to take care of one another. I can't imagine going through my life without my, my brothers. And we faced massive difficulties and tragedies at an early age. We had a sister who died of mm-hmm. uh, SIDS. When that happens, normally families break apart. Uh, the opposite happened with us. Uh, my parents pulled really close together to each other and really pulled my brothers and I even closer into what a, probably what a normal family might have experienced. And I think that set the, the groundwork for who I would become. Having that really strong base to build on. At the time, if you fast forward, 17, 18, I rebelled against it because my family was so close it was almost smothering. And so that's when I joined the Army and left. Looking back, man, I sure do. I, I sure am blessed and grateful that I had that experience. Well, that's fantastic. I've had loss in my family too, and unfortunately, the opposite happened with me, where we kind of did break up. But that's good to hear that you were brought closer together. You mentioned that you've worked with all three of your brothers, or, or the other two brothers. Yeah. What to what capacity are they entrepreneurial as well, or were they in the startups that you were working yeah. with, or? Yeah. So my younger brother and I are two years apart, and we're. We've always been very, very close. My older brother is four years older than me, so there's a six-year age span between my older brother and my younger brother. So my older brother has always been entrepreneurial, always been a sales person, Uber salesperson, very, very, very talented. My younger brother is background in computer science. In fact, just this month, he's finishing uh, another PhD. Yeah, so he's a, he's a smart guy. I mean, he's, he's very educated and very smart. 
And I'm in between the two. So I'm the R&D guy, the creative guy, and the market. And so it was just natural, I think, when we were in our 30s, kind of to pull together and to build some stuff together. So my younger brother and I have built 15 companies together. My older wow. brother and I have done three or four. And if you look at it, the really big company I'm known for is Skin It, stickers to cell phones and laptops, created in 2004, grew to be worth over 100 million, run fast, profitable from day one. I just knocked it out of the park with that company. I came up with the idea, convinced my older and younger brother to join me over the summer of 2004. Everyone thought the idea was stupid. Everyone thought the idea was going to fail. Everyone thought it was a loser out of the gates. But somehow I convinced my brothers to believe in it. We launched it on November 11th, 2004. Crash our web servers with traffic and orders. Wouldn't get caught up until the following spring. It was just the perfectly executed company. And I'm just so blessed I got to do it with both my brothers. And we all got to go on that ride together. And we all add value uh, to the company together. You know, that was just an amazing experience. And I hear the horror stories of people working with family. And I have those as well. I mean, it hasn't always gone cleanly with my brothers. But man, I, I'm sure grateful for the times I did have that were good with them, you know, building companies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you said that you were the one that came up with the inspiration for Skin It. Where, did, did you see a gap in the market or where, where did the inspiration come from? Yeah. yeah, so Skin It, you know, I teach a lot on building startups. So I, I know a lot about building companies and especially ideation. So like now I advise big companies on how to think and act more entrepreneurial. And so my skill sets in ideation, mm -hmm. discovering ideas. In the late winter, spring of 2004, I had a company called InReach that was building uh, the first app stores in existence, so mobile content space, ringtones, graphics, and games for phones, and it's building them for brands like Harley-Davidson, mm -hmm. Maxim Magazine. Um, so it was privatized content stores for mobile phones. The idea came about because I was visiting with Nokia, and the meeting right before mine was all kinds of executives of the U.S. Nokia. And I could tell when everyone was walking out of the meeting and I was walking into the meeting, some of the people I was meeting with were in the previous meeting, there was a lot of stress. And I always tell people, just pay attention to stress, pay attention to friction, pay attention when people are upset, because uh, there's usually a problem to be solved there. And so I asked my, the, the team at Nokia, I was like, hey, what's going on? You guys seem really upset. And they said, have you seen these mall kiosks, these kiosks and malls popping up selling faceplates for Nokia phones? from China. And I go, yeah. And they go, well, our interlock property is being knocked off and people are replacing their phone cases or their phone, the, the industrial design of, of phones with these plastic knockoffs. And I go, yeah. So what's the issue? They go, well, they're using leaded plastic mm. and all the antennas for our phones are internal. Oh. They're inside the device. And so we're having massive problems with denigration of cell signal and people are blaming us and not the case, the knockoff case that they bought. Interesting. And they actually said, they, they go, we wish there was some way our consumers, our customers could personalize their phones without changing their shells. And I just filed it away, thought about that. And I ended up selling in reach to a public company that spring and decided that Skin It was going to, what would become Skin It was going to be the idea I had. I see a need in the marketplace to make personal devices 
as individualized as the people who own them. And that was my thesis. Mm -hmm. uh, that at that time, cell phones came in black or silver, very masculine. There was no personalization. There was no upload a photo. There was no colorful cases. There was nothing uh, at that time. And so my idea was, let's take automotive technology, so stickers for auto for cars, and custom cut them to fit on consumer electronic devices. So one of the big devices at the time was the Palm family with the keyboard and the phones. And so I bought a vinyl cutter, desktop vinyl cutter, and I bought contact paper, shelf paper at the grocery store and created the first skin for my phone. And I knew I was onto something because I was so excited putting that first skin on my phone. I think I had a Nokia 5200 or 6000 series at the time. And I custom cut it and designed the CAD and I cut it out and stuck it on. I, I knew I was onto something because it married two things that I love, art and technology. Mm -hmm. So I was able to make my phone 100% unique in all the world. And I was able to do it with technology. So two loves of my life, art and technology. And I took my phone and I showed it to my brothers and they thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And so they wanted one. And I just believed more than anything that the, the world was ready for the trend of personalization. And so I put a company together and I, because I had just sold a, a company to a, a public firm, VCs would take my meetings. And I went out to the Bay area to a very well-known VC and went to pitch them on Skin It. And I got about not even five minutes into my pitch, and the VC stopped and said, this is the effing stupidest idea I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and there are these moments in my life that I, I take these mental pictures, and I still have the picture perfect in my head. It was of him across the conference table and me telling me how stupid my idea was. And he had a, a Nalgene water bottle and his laptop, and both of them were covered in the stickers. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it, it dawned on me in that moment, there are people in this world, even, uh, even venture capitalists who you think would be really good at pattern recognition, who can't see an obvious future, even though it's right in front of them. Mm -hmm. His laptop and his water bottle were personalized with all the startups he invested in. It was unique to him. It was his identity. His personal identity was now on his devices, and he couldn't see the opportunity. So fast forward a couple of years, when we sold Skin It, I sent him a press release, kind of a, a petty little thing to do, but it was, it was nonetheless very, very fun to do. Uh -huh. And so that was kind of the, the, the atmosphere around Skin It. And my younger brother came in early on to build out the technology with me, platform, built one of the first photo uploaders in existence. Older brother came in, handled sales uh, in biz dev, and I really focused in on the product. How do we make, how do we create a product that delights and entertains a, a consumer, but do it at scale? And so how do we scale this out? Mm -hmm. And we had to face that really, really fast. On November 11th, we uh, in Gadget and Gadget and Gizmodo both wrote articles about Skinit, it out. And we were just inundated 
in the least with orders to the point where it crashed our website and just couldn't take anywhere. That, that was such an amazingly awesome experience, but also one of the, the scariest moments I've ever had as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Be careful what you ask for. And it was funny. I don't know if you remember, there used to be a UPS commercial where there's four, five people standing around somebody working on a computer. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the commercial was about when the orders come in, are you going to be ready? That was the name of the, the commercial. Okay. And it starts dinging, dinging, dinging. And the whole the commercial was all about UPS is your partner to help you grow. Well, we lived that real mm-hmm. commercial to the extreme. At least on the commercial, they were able to scale. We were unable to scale. And I have some amazing stories about the months after that about fake it till you make it and how do you grow into success and how do you step in to build something that delights your, your consumers. And Skinner was just an amazingly awesome PhD level education I got mm-hmm. on how to build an amazing product that consumers just love. So were you guys, it sounds like you were handling everything. I mean, you, obviously you were handling the client acquisitions. You probably had to go to the Nokia's and all of that, get the IDs for all their phones. So you knew what size to, to make these stickers. Were you actually making, were you manufacturing the stickers yourselves as well in-house? Yeah. Or were you outsourcing all that? Or No, everything was 100% in-house, including our servers. So we were at a Tolo facility. So there was no Amazon web services at the time. Mm-hmm. So there was no rack space at the time. So we were in a facility, I believe, called Inflow, and we had bare metal. So my younger brother would buy servers, configure them all up, put them in the co-host facility, and they'd give you a cable, you plug it in, you that bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Everything else was up to us. So my younger brother handled that piece, the networking piece. Uh, we worked together on the website and designing the e-commerce system. So I know how to code, designer. So I, I know that skill set very, very well. And then I bled over into the marketing with my older brother and how do we get the message out there and how do we do customer acquisition and who are the partners we need to partner with. And then Tom took over and then focused on sales. Mm-hmm. In the middle, I was in charge of the product as well, which was the manufacturing, shipping, logistics, and customer service. And mm-hmm. we had to build it all from scratch. There was nobody... There was no SaaS platforms at the time. There was, it, it was really hard. And we didn't have funding. So this was just funded out of my brother's and I's pocket at the, at the time, which I think is brilliant. I'm, I'm so grateful I didn't raise capital, uh, structured venture capital. We brought some angels in early on, some of the people who had been in previous deals with us. So that was fun because they, they gave us a ton of advice and sounding boards. But the hardest part uh, in those early days is when we launched the website on November 11th, I was <laughs> thinking that I could do the 80-20 rule, that 80% of our orders will come from 20% of the devices listed on the website. Mm-hmm. So I went out and I looked at all the carriers, all the game consoles, and consumer electronics is a broad category. So I was looking at all the things that are personal, personal consumer electronics, and I listed to them all on the website. And we had a ton of stock photography and stock designs and some custom designs we did. We didn't have any licenses yet. It's like Disney, Marvel, NFL. We hadn't acquired that stuff yet. So this is just generic designs, uh, royalty-free designs. And in typical fake it till you make it entrepreneur style, I listed hundreds of devices on the website. (laughs) 
And I guess that these 20 to 30 devices were the most popular. So I was going to build this out. So certain Nokia phones, Palm Pilots, the Game Boy. So I, I had CADs created for those. And we didn't have a relationship with all the hardware guys yet. So these are just devices that I had or my brothers had or I borrowed from other people to CAD them. And I needed them for about two hours per device mm -hmm. to create the, the, the vector that cuts it out in the vinyl. So we launched on November 11th, and the 80-20 rule did not happen because personalization transcends rules of thumb. And we had hundreds upon hundreds of orders evenly spread across every device I had on the site. Oh, wow. So luckily the servers crashed, and I laid out all the orders by device and realized that we had made a huge mistake. I had made a huge mistake. That... We didn't have the CADs to create, to deliver on the promise that we had made. So I emailed everyone and just said, hey, sorry, we don't have this done, but if you hang with us, we're going to solve this problem really, really fast, and I'm going to get you your skin really, really quick. Mm -hmm. And I would say 90-some, I mean, high 90% style, everyone said, yeah, we love it. We've never seen something like this. We're willing to wait. So I took my American Express. And every day I would go out to the retail. I lived in Golden, Colorado at the time. I would go to all the retailers. Circuit City was in business at the time. Best Buy, the carrier stores, uh, Office Depot, Office Max, Walmart, Target. And I had a list of all the devices, and I had quantities next to them. So I was going by the most requested down to the least requested. I would buy the devices. I would take them home. And I had a whole kit to surgically take the packaging apart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The security stickers on yeah. them, <laughs> uh, the plastic clamshells. And I would dissect the packaging, take the devices out, scan them, CAD them, test one sticker on them, reassemble everything, super glue the plastic clamshells back <laughs> together, and heat up the stickers to restick them. I mean, I had it down. Hat, and then I would return them the next day. Yeah. I did that for about four to five days. And then all of a sudden, I was being confronted by the store managers at all these locations. Mm -hmm. American Express, I guess, had reached out to them with a fraud warning. And everyone was trying to figure out the fraud I was perpetrating. And I wasn't committing a fraud. I was just mm -hmm. leveraging the return policies to the extreme. And it was. It wasn't fraud because I read the return policies. But what happened is I got banned from my hometown, all the consumer electronic retailers. <laughs> in my Luckily by then I had caught up on devices and I had formed relationships at the store level with T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, AT&T. And the store managers would let me borrow phones mm -hmm. overnight mm -hmm. and then bring them back in. And I would bring them back in with a ton of free skins. And it was a great marketing because then yeah. they would – I'll have skins on the devices and then they will recommend it. That's brilliant. And that led to introductions to every major carrier. And we actually built private label infrastructure for every major carrier to sell skins to their customers on, with their branding. Yeah, that, that is I, I, absolutely. No, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. And, and obviously with that 
foundation, you know, you've you've taken those learnings and those experiences and have transformed them into something that actually I've never really heard of. I'm going to say that you refer to it as EIRing, which again, I've never heard that term before. So if you could maybe just take a second to explain what exactly EIRing is. Yeah. So EIR is an acronym, stands for Entrepreneur in Residence. And an Entrepreneur in Residence historically has either been in an academic environment, so attached to a school, or in a venture capital firm. And what an Entrepreneur in Residence is someone that, in a venture capital capacity, was uh, an entrepreneur that was previously invested by the firm who sold their company. And the VC firm sees value in the skill sets that the EIR has and doesn't want to lose that. So they put them on staff for a minute. And what the ER do, does is look at all the deal flow through the entrepreneurial oculus and kind of helps with due diligence until an idea comes across that they're super interested in. And it might be someone coming through that maybe doesn't have the leadership skills necessary to run the company, or the idea or to lead the company they're creating, or they see patent match something in the market and they, they, they see an opportunity. And so they're kind of a pre-vetted talent pool. I since I've never really raised traditional venture capital before, I would never be an EIR at a venture capital firm. And so I decided to adapt this idea of an entrepreneur for hire uh, for corporations. Because what I was seeing is most unicorns that are being created are created in the startup world and not in the corporate world. Most new products that are launching that are creating strong affinities with consumers are coming from the startup world and not mm-hmm. the corporate world. And I'm fascinated by that because they have access to the same tools I have. In fact, they have more talent, more more time, and more treasure. I always call that the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. And so they know lean. I know a ton of innovation consultants are teaching lean or they're teaching design thinking. Or Corporations have the training. They have everything, but for whatever reason, they're not able to innovate at the pace and with the quality startups can do. And so I tried a grand experiment where I reached out. Uh, I was actually asked to come in and started EIRing for a security company building the next generation of ankle monitors uh, mm-hmm. to track felons. And so a really structured, traditional corporate environment. And they asked me to come in to help them move at pace, move faster, and to operate cheaper and to challenge the assumptions and processes they have through an entrepreneurial mindset. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. And it worked. It worked out really well. And so I then went and was asked to do it for Molson Coors, big global 
your brand, and it worked there. And so I'm working on a book right now that kind of covers what an EIR and a corporate environment does, but it really is this idea of a serial successful Gen Xer like me, what do they do on their next act when they don't want to go build another company? Mm-hmm. They can add value inside of a corporate environment by helping those teams think and act more entrepreneurial mm-hmm. and really challenge a lot of these processes that have outlived their value and really help corporate innovation teams, especially truly understand the entrepreneur's mind and not through just lectures or not just through and guest speaking, but really working hand in hand next to me mm-hmm. or someone like me, it really unlocks powerful, powerful, powerful learnings for corporations. So you mentioned twice there that you were asked to come to these, these different companies. Can you talk a little bit about how you created that, how that happened? You know, obviously, one of the biggest challenges that most entrepreneurs have is how do we get into these other, these other companies? Uh, it kind of seems like you were able to make that leap pretty easily where, again, these people are approaching you for your services. So you can, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, so I've been I've been I've been blessed that early on in my career, I my very first companies I created, I, I learned to build white label technology infrastructure. So I would never really cared about my brand to the end con- cust- consumer. Mm-hmm. My customer was usually a, like a T-Mobile, or like with original apps, skin it for cars that I created. It was like Ford or Mini Cooper, and how could I build infrastructure that then they take to their customer? So in my career, I've worked with probably over 100 large companies, innovation teams, by providing them mm-hmm. my product in a white label where they're taking it to the customer. So I have a lot of experience working with big companies. And during that time at Inread, Skinit, and Original Apps, the big three that I built that were working with the companies, it was always immensely painful for both of us, us and the company, to work together because we would be moving at the pace of a startup and they were moving at the pace of a company. Mm-hmm. And so I learned unbeknownst that it was a valuable skill that I'd be able to exploit later, how to kind of help them speed things up, how to make decisions faster, how to operate more entrepreneurial. So fast forward to when I, I stopped building companies and become a consultant or an advisor or an EIR, the lexicon I use with potential customers is corporate and not entrepreneurial. And it helps that I have a lot of success to point back to. Mm-hmm. So I can point back and say, hey, this is the difference we made at BMW. You know, this, take a look at the, the technology we made for Volkswagen. Take a look at what we did for T-Mobile. And, and so, real quick on that point, if you, were, if you had a lot of experience dealing with smaller companies and you were making a leap to a larger company, do you feel that that would have the same impact? in that sense or, or does it would you say that it would need to be sort of on the same level the same type of scale of company yeah so i specialize in global 1000 okay. brands mm-hmm. and because their problems are really unique they're global in nature and so the scale of the innovations they're creating are usually global in scope and that just leads to a plethora of bad decisions Mm-hmm. So if you think of a startup, you're usually launching small, you're probably going to adopt some lean design thinking methodologies to help 
So you're going to attach your, your idea to a framework and kind of run it through that process. It doesn't work at the global scale. And the other thing I found was, for me, the second half of my life, I'm really focused on providing scale. You know, companies called Inspire are not by chance. I mean, the greatest job title I've ever had was Inspire. So I'm trying to do it at scale. So I'm trying to reach as many people as possible, help as many people as possible. So that's kind of why I focus on the global 1000. There's, there's a personal component, and this is also my background. Mm-hmm. Can an EIR help a 500-person company? Most definitely. And there's a lot of really qualified entrepreneurs who have been serially successful that can add value just by changing the way companies think about process. One of my favorite stories to talk about is uh, there was a consultant that was brought in to advise GE on building nuclear reactors. And it's called consultant stock in the GE and the team behind it and trying to figure out why it takes so long what is all this work that needs to be done to build a nuclear reactor? And the team's like, it's really hard. We can't speed it up. It's next to impossible to speed it up. It's a waste of time. So the consultant asks, hey, why don't you share with me all the processes you go through? And just let me take a look at them. And he went through it all. And his report back was the amount that was mandated by the government was immensely small. The majority of the processes were internal processes created by teams historically over time, and a lot of those were outdated. Mm-hmm. But people follow them no matter what. Because that's always been done. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So you get someone like me into a company that has thick processes, and one of the one of the jobs I had at Molson Coors, so Scott Cooper was my counterpart, the global head of, of uh, innovation at Molson Coors. And he would ask me, he goes, Mike, I want you to be in this meeting, and I, and I want you to call us out when we're thinking or acting corporately compared to how our the startups we're competing against are thinking. And so that's a lot of fun because they would be talking about, okay, we need to run it through this type of testing queue. Like, man, startups don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, startups, you know, release an MVP, get feedback, release an MVP. They iterate with live customers. You guys are doing focus groups and you're building for scale versus the first sale. And that was one of the things I'm always talking about is stop building to be a global product. Just focus on building a product that you can get your first sale. Mm-hmm. And let's start small and then grow it over time. And so just changing some of the processes in the ways of working, the ways of thinking was, was fascinating to me. And what happened is over time, I think EIRs help change the psychology. So my background's in psychology. So everything I do is really focused on startup psychology. You know, right now we're in the midst of this this awful black swan event globally. And I'm talking a lot with my corporate clients, past clients included, about the psychology of innovation moving forward and why I I think I was very bearish on the startup world two months ago. Mm -hmm. I thought corporates were going to step in. We got the tools, they're changing their ways of thinking, they have time, talent, and treasure. The new, all new innovation is really expensive, AI, self-driving cars, robotics, automation. It's just really, really expensive to participate in, and the startup world is, is going to constrict. I've totally reversed my thinking on that. It's a Black Swan event, and now big companies actually have the disadvantage to startups. Mm-hmm. All the patterns of our lives have changed. So 
I've worked from home my whole life. And now all my friends in the corporate world are working from home and they're kind of freaking out. How we shop, how we eat, how we communicate. Every, all of these patterns are, are up in the air and we're going to settle back down, but none of them are going to go back to the way they were before. They're going to land slightly askew or be abolished completely. That is going to create a massive number of opportunities, more opportunities. I can't think of one event in human history that has created more opportunity than the black swan event we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. Big companies will be unable to respond to all of those opportunities. They just will. They're just not going to be able to do it. They're going to be in self-survival mode. And what we're going to do is have an influx of talent enter the job market. Savvy entrepreneurs and savvy people are going to be able to see how these patterns are settling and be able to take advantage of them and build some amazingly awesome stuff. Fast, cheap, easy. Mm-hmm. So an example I love to throw out to people is the idea of leveraging ghost kitchens. So ghost kitchen is a shared kitchen workspace that companies are using today to fill the delivery queues because uh, they don't want people coming showing up to a nice end restaurant to pick up mm-hmm. to go, kind of a mm-hmm. disruption. So there's this idea of ghost kitchens that have taken off over the last next couple of years. I think you're going to see savvy entrepreneurs step in and say, from I'm creating a, a, rest- a virtual restaurant only. Mm-hmm. There is no physical space for this restaurant. Mm-hmm. We're going to create an amazing unboxing experience. We're going to create an amazing uh, customer experience. We're going to create amazing order experiences. We're going to create amazing food experiences. And we're going to create food that specifically is built to be delivered. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be our brand. So we're not going to have to invest in space and parking lots and waiters and waitresses and uh, front staff. We're just going to be virtual. I think you're going to see a ton of those type of businesses launch because the patterns change. Mm-hmm. I think people are going to want to get together. But I think people are going to get really used to just having everything delivered mm-hmm. and being cool with it. I see a ton of business opportunities around delivery. DoorDash and Grubhub are super expensive if you're a restaurant, super expensive. So I think you're going to see this idea of regionalized or localized delivery co-ops. So picking 20 restaurants, I live in Oceanside, California, so 20 restaurants pull together to have their own fleet of delivery drivers. Mm-hmm. They all chip in pro rata based on the number of orders per that month to have their own fleet of delivery drivers. So they're not having to give Grubhub or DoorDash an exorbitant amount of money to deliver their product. Across the board, I see just uh, in every industry a ton, a ton of new opportunities. And big companies won't be able to respond to them. No, that's that's fantastic. I actually just heard of the concept, and I don't know if this is something new, but there's a, a pizza store just down the road from us, and they're doing take and bakes right now. So basically, yeah. it's a it's an uncooked pizza that they make, and you take it home and you bake it, and that's that's kind of their carryout promoting now. So, you know, again, I completely agree that there's opportunity in these downturns that you just have to be able to to recognize and and capitalize on. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of it is a new psychology we're going to have to 
spring cover. And, you know, I, like right now, for the next two months, I don't plan to make any money. I just mm-hmm. come to accept that my clients aren't going to be able to pay me, mm-hmm. and that's fine. If they want free services, I'll give them free services. If the world needs my help, I'm more than happy to give it. You know? So follow me on any of my social platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever. I'm giving all my content away for free because that's what you do in Black Swan Awards. Mm-hmm. That's what someone like me does in Black Swan Awards. Just give it away. And my corporate clients, they're radically frazzled because they, they have to deal with so many other issues and protect so many other things, especially shareholder value, that the, the concept of innovation to them has radically changed. And so there's going to be a, a ton of gaps in the marketplace for savvy people to step in with low cost, low amounts of money, small amounts of time to be able to make a, a big impact and make a living. But it involves a certain psychology that has to change. This is what I, I teach now quite a bit of the startup psychology. And I really want to share this because I think this is the big takeaway that I'm giving everyone over the next month is inspiration. Inspiration is the key. You cannot self-inspire. I can't inspire myself. I have to seek inspiration. And inspiration gives you hope. And I'm tired of people saying hope is not a strategy. Everything in my career says the exact opposite. Hope is the strategy. I do hope exercises all the time. I hope my customer loves it. So I hope we're building the right thing. I, I hope, I hope, I hope. And hope informs courage. So when you have hope, it gives you courage. You can't have courage without hope, period. And so courage replaces fear. So my psychology background, I've done a ton of studies, studying on the parts of the brain that feel fear and the parts of the brain that feels courage, and they're very similar in share. So I believe that when you have courage, your level of fear drops. And so the more courage you have, the more you'll act. So right now there's a complete paralysis with everyone. And this is what a lot of new entrepreneurs start to experience when they run into the first hurdle or the first, suddenly they get too many orders and the web servers crash. The first crisis, they feel this hopelessness. If you're feeling hopeless, seek out inspiration. Inspiration will give you hope, hope will give you courage. And you'll step into the mindset that makes amazing things happen. This is what I teach my corporate clients. There's a lot of the issues in the corporate environment where people have something called learned helplessness. Where they've just learned to be helpless. They believe that no matter what they do, it's not going to make any difference. When a group of people in a corporate environment feel that way, it leads to learned hopelessness. No matter what we do as a company, it's not going to make any difference. The minute you're hopeless, you have no courage. And if you don't have courage, you don't act in the ways that the consumer needs you to act to deliver on the promise of what they want. Mm-hmm. So it sounds really hokey sometimes, but it actually works. You seek out inspiration. Stop reading the news. Mm-hmm. It's no. in the fear business, not in the hope business. I, I, I completely, completely agree. I love that. I love that. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago that you were coming out with a book very, very soon. Yeah. Uh, are, are any of these techniques covered in the book? By chance, do you talk too much about any of that? Yeah, you know, I just had a, a meeting this morning about my book. Book is uh, an EIR manual, so uh, how a corporate can leverage an entrepreneur and residence. So I'm refactoring some of my book to deal with black swan events like mm-hmm. what we're experiencing. I've mulling around putting that on hold. I think the world might need me to put that on hold. I think the world needs 
more inspirers and less innovators mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm kind of in flux. I'm, I'm thinking a lot, you know, I'm giving all my startup content away for free because I mean, it, it, it's valuable and people need it. And a lot of people are, are not going to be able to re-enter the job force in the way they think They're, that patterns change. That doesn't mean they don't have value. And that doesn't mean that there's not other opportunities. And I think my ideation exercises and all that are really, really good for people to go through to figure out what's next. It inspires them. It leads to hope, leads to courage. The world's a better place. And so I think the next chapter of my life, this next season I'm going into, deals more with Mike the Inspirer versus Mike the Innovator. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's daunting. I'm not going to lie. It's a little scary. I, I own the domain. I am not afraid. Uh, dot com. <laughs> and so uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm thinking more about you know how can I just whisper to myself again and again I'm not afraid mm-hmm. and uh, step into my courage a little bit more. What does life look like as the inspirer? Are you getting? Are you going to start doing speaking events or what does that look like for you? Are you still consulting to different yeah. large companies or? Yeah, any company, any you know, global thousand that needs help figuring out what they're going to do next, how they're going to step into, how they're going to take advantage of these patterns, settle and, and really re-examine who they are and what they stand for and the products they serve and the community they serve. They really want kind of an entrepreneurial mindset to help them. Uh, of course, I will be there for them. So I'll probably split my time up with that. Uh, but I think the Inspire, you know, the name of my company is Inspire. And I just, you know, when I flip through Facebook or I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit, and I just feel the massive unease in the world. I mean, people are suffering, and I know a ton about suffering, mm-hmm. way more than I probably should. And I think I can help. I'm super optimistic, super upbeat. Is it a scary time? Sure. But courage is something I know a lot about. And so I, I, to answer your question, I don't know. Follow me on social, and when I figure it out, I'll, I'll share it with everyone. But I, I think that just that one sense, you know, that one thing I have, you know, inspiration leads to hope, hope leads to courage, courage replaces fear. It's kind of this mantra I keep on repeating again and again and again, and I, I think it's important. No, that's great. That's great. So, so last two questions, uh, and then we can wrap this up. Uh, you mentioned before that you had some resources that people could could check out. Where would they find them at? I'm posting everything on LinkedIn because, and I'm also posting them on Facebook. So you can just search on me on Facebook. I, I'm posting them on LinkedIn as well just because I think that's the professional network and a lot of the stuff's about ideation, innovation. I'm not posting it all at once, but I'm kind of leaking it out. I also have uh, three courses that are on Udemy. Mm-hmm. I've had over 8,000 people take them from around the globe. I turned all those free forever. So if you want to go take one of my, my startup courses, just search on my, my name and you'll see the three courses. They're free. Enjoy them. I hope they add value. Let me know if they do. People, the feedback I'm getting is positive on that. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Just follow me on, on some of the socials or go to my Udemy courses. Fantastic. And I, that kind of answered the, the last question is, uh, how would you want people to reach out to you? Pretty open, pretty easy to find. And I have a unique last name. Uh, so just search on Mike Stemple and you'll, you'll find me. I, I really like it when people ask me questions underneath pieces of content because everyone then gets the value of my responses versus sending me an email and then it's kind of isolated. So if you can 
ask a question and then tag me or do it in a, a way that he, it can be scalable and reach a further group of people, that would be awesome. I love to pontificate. If you're watching my content, nothing is scripted. It's 100%. I went back through and I've been listening to my, my, my course material to be able to post some of those videos from my courses. And uh, I cringe a little bit because I'm massively opinionated about stuff. But I'm super entertaining as well. I, I think people uh, will, will get a kick out of it. That's fantastic. No, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about your life's journey. I mean, this, you really have done quite a bit and congratulations on all the success. And certainly I'm going to be following you and your, you know, your next inspirational steps and wherever that may lead. So again, thanks for, for taking the time to talk to us today. You bet. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.